Hello and welcome to the Making Theatre podcast. My name is James Farncombe. And my name is Bruno Poet and we're freelance lighting designers. This time we're talking to voice and dialect coach Jeanette Nelson, who has worked extensively in theatre, film and television. When we're lighting shows, Jeanette is one of those members of the team we see listening and watching quietly in rehearsals or during tech, but with whom we often have very little interaction. But as we discovered in the course of this conversation, our work is much more interdependent than you might think, and you would never believe the difference it makes sitting straight and keeping both feet on the floor. She joined us online from her home in Stratford-upon-Avon. So hello Jeanette, welcome. It's lovely to talk to you this morning. Um, I'm feeling a bit paranoid about my voice. Perhaps I should have um, gone and done a warm-up, but we can maybe get onto that later. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Yes, and your voice sounds fantastic. You both sound wonderful. <laughs> oh, you're very kind. <laughs> thank you. Um, let's start with uh, the fantasy party that we often take our guests to. Uh, you're at a party with several people that you've never met before. How do you describe to them what you do? What do I do? I work with actors uh, to um, support their voice work in the theatre. Uh, my job has three strands. Um, it, I look after their vocal health and a bit like an athletics coach, I might move their work forward a little bit. I sometimes teach dialects and I also work with the rhetoric, the language of the play to help them to understand structure uh, and idiom and how best they can use the language, not as a director, but literally uh, as the character is written. That's a really interesting summary. And so how do people respond to that? Do, do people understand what that actually means, do you think? Do you mean people outside of theatre? People outside of theatre, yeah. Uh, no, um, they they understand the accent work and would usually ask me to demonstrate my facility with dialects. <laughs> right, do your party trick, open <laughs> yeah. your bag of accents yeah. and get a few out on the table, yeah. Yeah, and then they like to tell me how um, young people can't speak and they can't hear them, you know, if that's if they're yeah. Yeah. the older age bracket, or they <laughs> yes. don't do it like I did, um, or whatever. Um, and yeah. then there's the radio mic issue, uh, you know, they, they're not trained properly to speak. And, yeah. Um, but that's, those are the negatives, but people do like do like to be provocative about voice, I find. Mm. Um, and so I... Uh, you know, they, they're not on the front line like actors are. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. some, are some are just bewildered. Some uh, want to tell me about their um, amateur dramatic and childhood experiences. <laughs> and and, and, and yeah. top tips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's but, interesting. I think we might even dig into some of those questions as we as we get, go through this. But how, um, how did it begin? What led to a career in theatre, I suppose? And did you always... Imagine becoming um, a voice coach, working with voices and actors, or did it begin very differently? It began very differently. Um, I, I was a performer. Uh, I've been dancing since I was five. I went to Arts Ed in London as a day student when I was 16, did my A-levels there, did my first uh, pantomime um, as a chorus girl while I was at Arts Ed. In those days, mm -hmm. you, to join Equity, you know, we had to do 52 weeks in the provinces before you could get a full membership yes. um yeah. but they had some student cards they would give out so i i managed to get a, a pantomime during my christmas holiday one of my christmas holidays there in weymouth mm -hmm. and barnstable and got my equity card there so after that i was a chorus girl i did um, pantomime in manchester summer season in blackpool i did a long 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 tour of the musical rosemary right which, <laughs> with john hansen this is this is all for the older generation here um <laughs> But about that time, the, the new rock musicals came in, mm. and I absolutely hadn't been trained because uh, I was singing as well. Yes. Um, and in fact, I wanted to sing more than I wanted to dance and ended mm. up being uh, what they called a soubrette, which was a singer who could dance. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a very difficult for me to, you know, I didn't, I, my voice wasn't trained to do Jesus Christ Superstar or, or whatever. Uh, so I... Uh, there was an audition that was always in the stage and I, I decided I would go for it but I was out of work which was for Murray's Club and I don't know if you know about Murray's Club do you? No, I know, I don't Murray's Club is it was in the West End and it's where the Profumo scandal went on not oh, while I was there I at the tail end of Murray's Club I, I worked in their cabaret as a singer and while I was there I met um, another person that was in the show her husband was uh, a singer called Vernon Nesbeth, and Vernon Nesbeth had been um, 
part of a group called the Southlanders. And again, you're too young for this, but they had a big hit called I Am a Mole and I Live in a Hole <clears throat> before before I joined them. Anyway, he, he was setting up on his own and he wanted two girls to work with him. So yeah. I, I joined him and I then spent the next four or five years working all over the world in, in cabaret shows wow. and, and in England too. There used to be these cabaret clubs and, and nightclubs in hotels and um, and had a whale of a time. Mm, I bet. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so sing, singing and dancing, backing him. And then I got to about 27. It's, it's a quite a turning point, I think, isn't it, for a lot of people. Yeah. And I was, and I was by then I'd left, we'd, we'd split up, and I was doing solo work mm-hmm. with bands and in clubs. And I was really bored, I think. So I decided to go back to my education, and I did an English degree at Queen Mary College, University of London, thinking I was going to go into marketing or publishing or something. But while I was there, um, our Shakespeare tutors had been putting on student Shakespeare productions for local schools very successfully for years. I did one of those with them, and then they asked me in a summer break if I'd be interested in helping them set up a small-scale professional company. And I did that, and um, by then I probably realised I wasn't going to leave theatre. Right. And Hmm. as part of that, with the students... From my singing work, I'd um, been doing some warm-ups with them. And so when yes. it came to graduation, I thought, well, I don't think I can bear to be poor anymore, which is what it's like, isn't it, when you're a jobbing performer, you're just yeah. hand to mouth. Job, job, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, I wonder if there's anything I can do and continue to perform. Mm. And I wanted about voice coaching. I'd never, when I had once come across a voice coach. I had one session at Arts Ed, I think in my third year, when we were doing a production, I couldn't understand what she was doing at all. I'd had singing lessons, of course, because I sang. Hmm. I was driving past Central School of Speech and Drama. So I had a friend in the car. I said, oh, I bet they do a teacher's course. So I went in and got their perspective. And right at the back, there was a tiny little paragraph that said, uh, Advanced Diploma in Voice Studies. And it's now a, a, a master's and an MFA and international, la di la di la Anyway, I, I, I got on that, not knowing at all what it was going to be like or what I had to offer and found out that everything I'd ever done before you know movement singing and literature all came together that started my career as a voice coach and I never performed again oh really you never <laughs> yeah. back. that's it once you've once you've decided to do that it, it just flowed from there it did it really was a turning point then it was yeah. and is that uh, fairly typical as a career path for someone in your um, profession certainly in theatre voice the large majority have been performers of some sort yeah and it's usually a second career. When you are asked to give advice to someone who wants to do your job, do you tell them to go away and be an actor then to start with? If they've not done anything, yes. They, they've yeah. absolutely got to learn about theatre. You're right at the heart of it as a theatre voice coach and you need to understand how to behave and how it all works. Mm. Um, but also to have empathy with the performers and directors and everybody else. Yes, to know what you're asking of them, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. And do you think as a profession it's something that's, evolved over the time that you've been doing it has it become more and more important and more recognized i think so um obviously cicely berry who was the um is really was the doyen of voice coaches mm. at the rsc brought in there changed everything yes. um, and we've all sort of, you do yeah, yeah she only died last year um so she we've all sort of followed her in terms of mm. voice and language work um but uh I think the more um, directors have come through being staff directors at the RSC and at the National, the more they've come to understand what voice coaching can offer them and their companies, Mm. the more comfortable they get with it. So uh, I've been through that, a sort of peak of it, but I have noticed that there's a lot of um, younger directors coming through now at the the National who haven't done that and don't understand or don't know about voice coaching at all. Right. Um, and can be very frightened of it because, you know, seemingly me in a room on my own that they haven't asked for, you know, um, with an actor is a is very powerful. Yes. Um, so there is, I'm, I'm more and more have, uh, put in a position of hopefully um, helping new, new directors to uh, enjoy the work and to feel that it um, can support theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels like quite a responsibility, really, because you know everybody who comes behind me as a voice coach then is um, going to be affected by that. If you're thinking about voices professionally all the time, is it something you can turn on and off, or are your ears always alert to the way that people speak? Um, I think I switch it on and off. There are certain things that just push push their way into my consciousness, 
and I have to bite my tongue not to just give them a helpful hint, somebody a helpful hint to make <laughs> things easier for them. Um, yes. But I try, I try not to listen to people's dialects, for example, because um, you always want to hear what people are saying, not how they're saying it. So you want to engage with somebody. So yeah. I, yeah, I turn it on and off. I guess. I certainly find it very hard to go to go to a show uh, and, and not watch the lighting. I can't just enjoy a show anymore. No, I absolutely follow that. And I've, I've said to several people, when I retire from this business, I'm never going to go to a play ever again. <laughs> because I can't switch it off. I absolutely can't switch it off in the theatre. And yeah. it's hell. It's really hell. So, so Jeanette, what, what stage are you brought into the project then, normally? Well, again, it, it varies. Um, and it's different being a freelancer to being um, on a, a resident staff at the National Theatre. Um, as a freelancer, you, most of the freelance work is dialect work. Although there's more voice work coming through the, these days, I think most people have got to understand it. Um, mm. And that can vary. Some wonderful directors will think about that way right at the beginning and get you involved. Very often, dialects don't actually appear until partway through rehearsals. Or they think, oh, no, we'll be all right. You know, we haven't got the money. And then they get, you know, nearly to the tech and they go, so-and-so can't do it. And you have to come in, you know, pulled in to try and do remedial work. Um, or they'll ring up and go, could you do Serbo Crowd tomorrow? Um, I, yeah, <laughs> I just need to revise it. Um, wow. Uh, but but the, the national, so it's very different. As head of voice, I'm sort of in, in charge of allocating who does what, and I've got um, a part-time colleague. I try to put somebody on every production and mm. try to speak to the director early on. Once they know me or they've chosen me or my colleague um, they might get in touch early on and talk things through. It depends, you know, if it's a, a very text-based play, that might happen. Yes. Yeah. But very often, you know, we don't get a chance to really engage until first day of rehearsals. And once they're happy with me being there, I try to, to be in rehearsals as much as possible and just to listen. So uh, as soon as possible is the answer to that question, yeah. really. Are you ever involved in auditions? Does it, does it ever go that early? Only in as much as uh, if they're concerned whether somebody could fill the Olivier, for example. Mm or right. they can handle the text. Then they might do a session with me on the stage or in my, my studio, um, and then uh, be auditioned again. I think we're, we're going to come on to the, the subject of how to fill a big stage later on. But I'm interested to know if drama schools are still teaching actors the vocal skills they need for such a big stage as the Olivier. Yes, and I've been trying to help that. Um, a lot of the problems with young actors were if they weren't given the opportunity to to practice in big theatres, or maybe their teachers had never worked in a big theatre or themselves been able to help students in a big theatre. Mm. So I set up a programme of inviting all the, the major drama schools to bring their students to the Olivier for an hour every year. And mm. I started by teaching the teachers. I've got them all there. And then I leave them. Now I leave them to it. Mm. Um, so so that they get that chance. And I can see over the years that they, the teachers have got more confident, the students are, are better at it and getting more flexible within it. Um, but uh, yeah, they need the chance to do it. Yes, and is that something that a few sessions in the Olivier can make a big difference, Huge. or is it something they need to constantly be doing and rehearsing? Is it is it about learning a technique or practicing or a combination? Well, yes, a combination. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly with students, you know, they're they're practicing all the time, so they're yes. usually it's usually in their second or third term they come, so yeah. they're really ripe. Sorry, second or third year, they're ripe yeah. for doing it. Um, but people do get out of practice. I say it's it's physical, it's athletic. Speaking is a physical activity. I can imagine that the first Im the impact of that first time standing on the stage of the Olivier, for example, must be pretty big. Yeah, yes, although it's sort of deceptive from the stage. Um, so sometimes I get actors who've never been on the Olivier, but have been on, you know, big number one tour theatres around the country, huge theatres. Yeah. And they go, this is fine, I've worked on this, you know, this doesn't look big to me at all. Because standing on the stage, it feels with that configuration that the audience come to you. They feel mm -hmm. quite intimate. But, of course, everybody knows when you go back up into the auditorium, the, um, the, the actors seem miles away, and acoustically they are. It, it varies a lot. You know, some people do have that, oh, my God, experience. And others go, well, this is, is going to be a doddle. <laughs> and then they find out. <laughs> Auditoriums must vary so much in how much in terms of how much feedback they give to an actor. Can they feel when they're projecting well? Well, again, it does vary. And the more experience, yes, they, they do. Um, but quite a lot of them don't want to think about that at all and want to just concentrate on the, the stage space um, itself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's part of my job is to help them manage both. Hmm. 
Um, yes, some are incredibly aware, more aware than I am in a way. I've, I've learned a lot from actors and they go, oh, you know, I heard that, that, and they go, oh, great, I'll, I'll use that. <laughs> I was always struck in my touring days, I was always struck by certain members of, of uh, cast who would come in early and just prowl around the stage in the auditorium. Yeah. And it was never really clear what they were doing, but I, I guess they were just absorbing the atmosphere and working out you know how it felt for the audience and how far away the stage felt because so much of it's about perception isn't it if you have a some particular auditoriums that may not actually be that big but the stage can still feel a very long way away absolutely and it's an, and a really important part of warm-up not all actors do it but it's a, it is about owning the space isn't it you're right you know it's good to get a, a sense of how the audience view you and think about what how wide your perspective needs to be, how you're going to use your stagecraft to to include everybody but still seem to be realistic on the stage. Um, but it, it is, as much as anything, it's about this is my room, both areas of this belong to me, or we are sharing this space, we are telling a story across these two dimensions. Um, and, they, and we get them to sort of breathe the space in that way. Um, mm. it's a, it's, so it's fantastic, a fantastic perceptive exercise, yeah. We often are sat at the production desk and witnessing actors doing um, both vocal and physical warm-ups. And it's sort of fascinating to watch, I guess. But you're saying it's incredibly important that they do that. Yeah, well, not all of them do, but um, it's a physical activity, speaking. All voice warm-ups begin with physical stretching, the joints, the limbs, the ribs, but also the throat and the jaw to to, to get a sense of space and dexterity there um, uh, before they, they get into breath. And, of course, you breathe uh, from your whole body, really, although the lungs only go down to the diaphragm, all the muscles of the torso are involved in breathing. So they need to stretch those out, get in touch with those to relax them as well and uh, try right. and lose any um, any tensions of the day or performance anxiety. Well, not yeah. that they ever lose that, but, you know. <laughs> sure. But it's, it's all about the body completely, of course. How do you think about, how do you start to think about a new show? Do you start with, I guess you start with clues from the script and conversation with the director? I don't often get those conversations with the director, I have to say. There's only a few that want to talk to me that have got very involved with what I do. Of course, I read the script, but I don't read it. I read it for the story, particularly. You'd think Mm -hmm. as a language person, I'd be delving in there. But it's actually, for me, not until I hear it Mm -hmm. that I know Mm -hmm. what I need to do. Um, With helping individuals, but how the script works, I hear that more than read it. Mm. Which, is, which is why I spend so much time listening in rehearsals. And do you come in during the sort of early rehearsals when the cast are sat around the table with the director um, picking the script, or do you normally get involved later on when they're up on their feet, or is it just sort of constant? I come and go, and if, as long as they let me. And I like to do some of the table work, but I don't always want to be there right through all the actioning and so forth. For those of you who don't know, that's dividing the script into sections, etc. You know, it varies a lot. Uh, and also, because I'm head of the department, I can't sit all day in the rehearsal room. I have other things to do. But I often do two, at least two shows at the same time. But no, I like to, to touch base with as much of it as I can to be part of the team, for them to, yes. to recognise that I'm on the team. Now, of course, and when, when actors are making choi- I guess character choices such as accents and dialects, is, is that something you tend to get involved in? When um, do, do you get involved in those conversations before their decisions are made? It, um, sometimes. There's no, there's no givens with any of yeah, it, really. Of course. Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes actors are very good at a particular dialect. They don't need the help, or they might just a little need a little ear on it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they go, "I'd love to try this. Have you got any samples of it? And can we have a coaching session?" So I go and do my research and and uh, find good voices for them to listen to, and then try it yeah. out. Uh, yeah, so it, it's very flexible. I was just wondering if you could talk us through some of the work you might do with a cast member during a rehearsal process. So um, I like to I like to have session at least one session with all of the actors, but bearing in mind I, some of them I've worked with regularly for years, I might wait until we've had a conversation and say, "Do you want a session?" You know, I won't necessarily call them without asking them. Um, mm. If it's a high profile actor I've not met before, that would definitely be a negotiation, possibly with the director as well. And so much of that is is about getting to know them them getting to know me, um, sharing the work, talking about their experience with voice, whether and out of that conversations might come uh, some practical work. You know, they might say, oh, you know, I've always wanted to try, I don't think my breath is this, or so on and so forth, or I might go, should we just do a little work out? Um, just to get the work happening in the easiest, most organic way. Um, 
a lot of the younger actors who are used to do it, working with voice coaches at drama school just come and expect to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we sort of negotiate, should you come back again? You know, shall I, I'll give you a call. I'll wait for you to come. Or the director might say, please, would you do this uh, with so-and-so? So I say it's it's all varied. It's, it's all about um, building trust and relationships because working with the voice, you're working with something incredibly personal. Yeah, yes. yeah, we were imagining that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's clearly yours is a subtle art of picking your moments and knowing when and how to intervene. Trying to know. You don't always get it right, you know. I work with a lot of people. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Try, and, uh, trying to find that, even with people you've worked with for a long time. Hopefully they have the, they feel confident enough to say, not now, or yes, please, or yeah. lots of negotiating. You talked a little bit earlier about the relationship you have with the director, and clearly that varies from person to person. But um, I mean, I think I've been in rehearsal rooms when you've been there, and, and I'm aware that you're sort of sitting and watching off to one side sometimes, and then having a conversation with somebody quietly in the corner. But yes. How much of that do you negotiate with the director, or do people just accept that that's something that's an ongoing process that they don't need to worry about? If they know me, they're absolutely, yeah. they let, just mm. let me get on with it. Mm. Um, if they don't know about it, I try to talk them through it and how it how it works. If they're happy to, for me to be there, um, and I have had direct, directors watching very carefully what what she's doing over there. And if that happens, I will always try and talk it through with them. Directors aren't always keen to talk to me actually to have conversations mm-hmm. with me. Um, uh, sometimes because they don't know what to talk about or they don't know what the work is or mm-hmm. um, they don't want to think about the voice work. Uh, I don't know, there's lots of reasons. Um, But Mm. those that have have learned about it and understood it, um, some of them want me to do what I never want to do, which is sit beside them. Um, (laughs) I I, I never want the the actors to think there's more than one director in the room. And it can look like that. And it has looked like that sometimes. Mm. Um, So I try to say that if I think that's that's happening, um, that I prefer for the actor not to be thinking about voice while they're rehearsing but to be on the side there to hear them so there's a sort of overlap I suppose between um vocal clarity but also meaning and you don't want the technique to interfere with the process of understanding the meaning and the performance is is that what you're saying yes that's the fine art of modern voice coaching yeah yeah so we find many many different ways which is why we use language the language of the script as well because what would have been elocution or um you know it's sort of meaningless really in in, in the sense of a play Mm. Um, there's got to be a reason for doing everything within the context of the character and the part and the play and the theater Um, you can't isolate you can't say speak up you know it it, it's it is a very fine um art subtle art and constantly uh, you know i don't have a method really i i'm constantly trying to think of different ways to to approach a different person of course, because it, it must vary so much from, um, you can't generalise about the variety of people you get in the room. I no, think. I'm sure you have no. to adapt and, and work with um, whatever needs to be done and um, whoever needs the help. And of course, none of them have to work with me. No. I have, I have a, actually, as head of voice, I have quite a lot of responsibility and very, very little power. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested, you you sort of alluded to this before, but actors come from such a wide range of backgrounds these days with with varying degrees of theatre experience. And I know a lot of people start on television, actually, and come to theatre later on. How often do you find you need to effectively start from scratch, uh, knock them down and build them up again somehow? Yes, quite quite a lot. Um, Mm. uh, Although if they have had theatre, however far, away at theatre experience it's always in there somewhere um mm. but I, I do get uh, actors come who've had no training at all or no no yeah. drama school training or have never worked in a theatre so if that's the case especially with younger actors we try to get them in before rehearsals begin so I can okay. start the process or get them on the stage um and, and get them a little bit up to speed so that yeah. they feel more confident and, and confident with the other actors um in the space yeah, warm-ups do a lot of that, and sometimes I do that in a group in, in the rehearsal process, but that, that can also help to bring people back up to speed without destroying their confidence. Yes, I mean, imagine it's quite an, it can be quite an intensive and involved process at times. Yes, it is, yes. 
Very much so. It's sometimes fascinating watching actors work through their, I guess you'd call it unconscious actions and, and slowly become fully in control of their performance. Because conversely, it's also very difficult to watch someone who's not fully aware of their vocal and physical tics. Um, one of my favourites, if you can call it that, is what I call the unconscious lap slap. When someone <laughs> punctuates, they, what do you do to me? When they yeah. punctuate every line they deliver with a sort of slap to the thighs with both hands. Yeah. And another is the teeth suck or the tongue click at the end of every sentence. Yeah. And what, once yeah. I've become aware of it, I, I can't stop listening to it and it drives me to distraction. Are you, <laughs> are you involved in making actors more self-aware of these things? Yes. Um, uh, and sometimes I will do it without telling, I will, I will solve it without telling them there was a problem in the first place. Um, so if, if somebody is sort of slapping their thigh on a word, it's because they're not quite, they're either not sure of the meaning or they're not trusting that the, the words, their voice is conveying the meaning they want. Mm, so I would yeah. find some voice exercise to help them engage with what it is they're saying or they want to say, which takes yeah. away the need to reinforce it by slapping their thigh in some way. <laughs> the click thing is, is absolutely um, about how you breathe um, mm. and can be very hard to fix. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Because people get feel safe with things they've done for many, many years. Yes. And you don't want to pull the rug from somebody at the most dangerous part of their life, you know, when they are going to go into the Olivier Theatre or the National Theatre to do a really important play. Suddenly they've got to change their technique. You know, that's mm. really, really tough. Yes, absolutely. I can see how you have to tread very carefully in that in those circumstances because it, it must be very easy to undermine people's confidence or, you know, or just, you know, bruise their ego oh, yes. to the point where they really need to feel like they're in in control absolutely and i have done that and i've been uh, there have been occasions when i've been somebody told me you, you ruined my show oh my god yes so you know you have to take that on board and think how that wasn't intentional and how did that happen um yeah. but sometimes you've got i do get pressure from um, directors to go i can't hear them or they're doing that wrong you've got to fix that and trying to to deal with that pressure and the the anxiety or the nervousness of the performer is is really hard and i've, mm. I've um, failed at that sometimes this it strikes me there's also quite an overlap with the director in if you're dealing with the intention behind a line that, that must also be a minefield yes and i but i would never direct their intentions or suggest intentions right um right. so i'm not interpreting really i'm helping them to find out where intentions might change perhaps if i'm looking with the rhetoric and the language um, how how uh, how thoughts could be uh, divided up and clearly presented, not what they mean or what they want to do with those thoughts, but almost like the geography of it. Mm. Um, the, uh, how how um, finding the geography can change the rhythm can change the intention. There is a there is a sort a little overlap in in the fact that we both we can talk about the same language, and mm. some directors are very frightened of that, and some actors too will go, you know, careful, you're not directing me. Mm. Um, so, but I'm very clear about where the divisions are. But in the end, it's all about acting. I can't pretend I'm not working on their acting. Yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, most most actors who embrace voice work understand that it helps to be better better actors. Yes, uh, that's inevitable, isn't it? Because that we, I understand that the voice implies all sorts of things about us. Well, um, what interests me most of all, and and actors too, really, is authenticity. Is mm. helping them to. Um, speak as loudly and clearly as they need to within the context of play and the part, but from their own voice at its full potential. Mm. But authenticity, not playing another voice, even doing dialects, you know, you need to find it from your own voice, from your starting from your own accent. And and with business people too, you know, if you try to sound like somebody else, you know, you always sound inauthentic and will mm. lack trust. So this comes back to the body, you know, if you if you really in touch with how your voice works in your body and your breath the voice will be more authentic so that's that's always my um, priority in terms of pure voice work if you can call mm. it that. Mm. that's really interesting it's very clear actually i think so um dialect we've skimmed over this a couple of times so let's sort of dig in a bit more um how do you approach dialects i imagine there are resources available to you that you can draw upon but also i guess you must do a certain amount of your own research how does it begin, I suppose? Dialect coaches today don't don't know they're alive because they've got the internet. Yes. I used to have to get on a train or a bus for tomorrow and go and stand on a street corner or get into a taxi or into a cafe and get people to talk to me on my recorder. Um, so wow. you, uh, over my career um, when I was teaching dialects, I was constantly 
looking to record and uh, build my library of samples um, mm. from often from radio, but from people I met. If I went on holiday to Northumbria, I would look for a, a local dialect uh, recording. Sometimes people do those or folk music recording or something. Um, yeah. So I'm constantly building a library of cassette tapes mm. um, of lots of different types of voices and different classes and different situations. Um, so if I had a new dialect to teach, I would draw on the resources, listen, 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 listen. And then we write it out phonetically. We write, we, we start to write out for ourselves how um, the main vowels and consonants sound. And in the past, we've always taken standard English as a starting point. That's got more and more difficult these days in terms of what is standard English and, you know, what should be the... Um, if there, there's no norm, there never has been in England, really, no. of course. Mm. But, but how you how it moves away from because that's how the phonetic alphabet works. Yeah. And then we need to think about how we're going to teach that to an actor who might have learned phonetics at drama school, might not remember them. And um, we learnt really from Joan Washington. I don't know if you ever worked with Joan Washington, um, who was who's, no, who's a brilliant dialect coach and works mainly in film now. But I I, I when I was assistant voice coach many, many years ago at the National Theatre, I, I assisted her a lot. And she bring, brought in the idea of you need to help the actor to find the character of the dialect within the community they come from. So you start to talk about why is the rhythm like that? Is it because it's hilly there and the voice goes up and down because the landscape goes up and down? Wow. Why do they okay. shout at each other? Is it because they worked in cotton mills all their lives and they couldn't hear each other? Or why do they use their mouths a lot? Did they learn to lip read in those places? So all these things are sort of lateral thinking we, are, mm. we bring to our understanding of the dialect we've seen is the best way to teach actors. Although we do talk about actually your tongue needs to be a little bit in a different position and so forth. Right. You can break down an accent or a dialect into constituent parts that are identifiable in each and every accent and, yes. and dialect. Is that right? Yes. And it's more than is it more than just vowel sounds and consonants or, or yes. missing consonants? Yes, it's, it's 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 rhythm, intonation, volume, yeah. um, uh, and so on. Um, uh, That's yes, it, it is. Uh, you must have met some incredible characters in, in those times when you went and stood on street corners and asked people to speak into a recorder. And I was just wondering if did, do you have to um, ask them to use specific aspects because I guess there are certain vowel sounds that are very changeable. Yes, I I, do, I didn't actually. A lot of dialect coaches do. There's a sort of list of um, specific uh, vowel words with specific vowel sounds that some people use called a kit list because there's a uh, in it. Um, but I I didn't, never did that. I just got people to talk to me, um, and in a way, it, well, it, it it felt like a huge privilege actually to to talk to people about, often I ask them about their accents and their lives. You get a little sort of secret history about people mm. um, uh, and even recordings you know, that you haven't made yourself. You, it is sort of, and, uh, because it's often working class accents, you know, you do get that secret history coming through. I've seen some footage of, uh, of this kind of thing and it, they have a real sense of being a time capsule because sometimes it's people from you know, Yorkshire or somewhere like that from the 1950s or 1960s, and you can see how the language has moved on and it, it, it's like a little portal into time. Yes, the, the um, uh, British Library have uh, a good collection now. And there was, in the 1950s, there was um, a survey of recordings made called the um, Survey of British Dialects, which sometimes it's really hard to understand what the people are saying. The, the accents mm. are so strong. But yes, I've called on that a lot and it's a fantastic resource. Yeah. So I guess sometimes you have to cater for what an audience needs or expects an accent to be rather than what the reality of the accent truly is. Well, we have to include, don't we? We've got to be yeah, inclusive. Of uh, yeah, so yeah. And accents can be um, very exclusive purposefully sometimes, can't they? That people speak in their accents so they're not understood or they yes. uh, push people away. But obviously mm -hmm. in theatre, you've got to include people. A show that we all have worked on was London Road. Um, I did the version of Costello and then and James did the version the Olivier, which is a fascinating production because it was a verbatim theatre and the cast were working with the voices of uh, the people who, people whose stories we were telling in their ears, I think. Can you tell us a bit about that process and how you how you worked with them and how because they were singing in these in accents? Yes. Well I, I was actually only thing I did was um because they were listening to them all the time, I just gave them a, a a 
group session on the dialect, um, the East Anglian dialect, so that they would be aware of what they were listening out for. And the, and the big issue about those East Anglian dialects is although they're a rural dialect, they don't have the rhotic R. And it's mm-hmm. very, it can be quite hard for actors when they're getting into the feel of a, of a, a, of a country, southern country accent, not to use that because that's what they're familiar with. Um, and so after that, I was then just on R watch. <laughs> so whenever okay. I listened, I just go, you just put an R in. <laughs> and, that, and that really was it. Um, I mean, right. obviously in the theatre, I did my usual thing, uh, even though they're singing on radio mics, I just help them make sure they're clear. Yeah. Um, but I was on R watch. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, my first show at the National was Men Should Weep. By Ina Lamont Stewart, which yeah. was set in a tenement block in the in 1930s Glasgow, and the cast were all Scottish. Yeah, and and I also remember that they were they were very faithful to the dialect of the script, and that there was a concern from upstairs that it would be unintelligible for the London audience. And I think the request came down from top brass that the accents be toned down. And that at the time felt to me like an issue strewn with pitfalls. But the way you said that we we need to make it inclusive, but I remember the some of the cast bridling a little. Do you remember that? I do, very, very clearly. Yeah, and, it, and how did it pan out? Well, the thing is, it came late, really, and we put a lot of thought into it and a lot of negotiating, and I brought down a, a Scottish dialect coach in order to sort of be the, the negotiator to help them bring all their ideas together, and have, because every actor had a different idea about how, they, how things, how the vernacular should sound. Yes, it was, it was very late, and they were very upset about it in, in many ways, and I did a lot of that work about... Um, Clearly, they feel that it's not quite clear enough. Yeah. And Josie Rock, who directed it, you know, it was her first show there, so she obviously felt under pressure. And she gave yeah. a wonderful speech to them. She's very good uh, at bringing people together. Mm. Um, but it, uh, they had to manage it. And, and sometimes actors do have to manage those things. Yeah. Because I, it seemed to me that there was the note was late, so that it was undoing the good work that they'd spent the last four or five weeks. Work, you know, that that in itself is is tricky. But also, there was a political side to it, wasn't there? Very much so that yeah. there was a Scottish cast who felt a, a rightful sense of solidarity yeah. uh, presenting this show on a stage in London. Yeah. It was vernacular words that he, they wanted them to change. It wasn't just the pronunciation. Mm, right um and I, I thought that was a shame and of course i don't think it would happen now if you think about um um uh, uh, uh the the west indian play we just did um, nine night yes yeah, well yeah. i couldn't i couldn't understand the vernacular of i got 60 percent of it but the audience told me what it meant it was fantastic you know right. mm, uh, so yeah, i think yeah. we it wouldn't have happened today that's an example of a text with a very strong dialect and, and i guess barbershop chronicles would be another a nine night uh, how do you go about preparing for a script that features accents and dialects that are from another culture like that? Well, now, um, especially because those are both um, black accents, we we have now black dialect coaches. Hazel Holder did both of those shows, right. uh, whereas in the past, I you know I would have done anything. Um, and it's so wonderful for for cast um, and writers and and the coaches to be working together on on dialects they know so well, as so much part of their history. Um, and so they, 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 their starting point is fantastic, you know. Um, but then because uh, very often the actors are very familiar with the dialect themselves, the dialect coach will also be involved with, let's, we've got to make sure that's clear, alongside the voice coach. It's maybe a question more for a playwright, because language and dialect are living, changing things. I just wondered how you keep up with developments. Well, you do. That's, you know, if you're still being a dialect coach, you've got to really keep on top of it. Um, yeah. I mean, the big thing that came in um, during my time were the change in London accents. Um, that mm. changed through to the accent that includes some Caribbean and some Asian influences. Um, that's mm. that's like a huge new accent. I mean, people talked about estuary English. I suppose that also appeared in my career at some point. But it's not as strong as this that influence um, on London today. So, yes, completely, you've got to keep up with that. Oh, no, the other one, in fact, I fell foul of that once. Um, uh, the Manchester accents, young people's Manchester accents have changed and sound a bit more like Liverpool these days. Um, the oasis sort of sound, you know, that's very different from yeah. the old um, Lancashire um, working class sound. So, yeah, yes. you've got to keep up to date. It's uh, really amazing. And, and writers don't often write in the dialect. It's quite rare. Mm. Um, yes, I suppose it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, because I mean, I think that Ina Lamont script was written yeah. in, uh, yeah. you could sort of see 
the dialect yeah. in no uncertain terms. Yeah. So has the use of language and dialect on stage changed significantly during your career? Because I imagine you, you hear old BBC recordings of Shakespeare, for example, when it's when everyone um, sounded you know, to, to our ears now, they almost sound alien with the sort of the RP pronunciation. And now, of course, we we celebrate accents much more, whether it's for a classical play or or for a modern one. I think it changed before I became a voice coach. Yeah. I think I, I went into voice training and we were very much taught you've got to find your own voice uh, before you make any, any other choices. People are were still taught standard English, but by and large, not having to do it for Shakespeare, although there are still there were still directors who felt they should be, you know, should be speaking in standard English. Mm. Um uh, so that it, it was the tail end, perhaps. Right. The big change has happened now with the Black Lives Matter happening during lockdown and the response of drama students to the curriculum in drama schools. Mm. And that is going to change. The canon of British theatre is still very much white, European. Um, I think people have been trying to extend that, but it's going to change a lot now. And that will also clearly change how people um, are feel about how things should be spoken yeah well I mean it has to change because we need to reflect the society we live in and yeah. um there's no question that we need to move forward and, and sort of be part of the world that we're we're all involved in yeah absolutely yeah Shakespeare's always fascinated to me I mean I've, I've witnessed many Shakespeare productions that you've been involved in and I'm always amazed by the clarity and focus of the text do you love working with Shakespeare yeah yes I do and I worked in RSC for four years, and I, I was the first voice coach at Shakespeare's Globe, so I, I have done a lot. Um, Gosh, I, yeah, sorry, I didn't realise you were the first, uh, first voice coach at the Globe as well. They did a sort of pre-season before the theatre was built and somebody helped there, but from, from Henry V on uh, for the first couple of seasons I was. Yeah. Yes, um, and I like working with Nick Heitner on Shakespeare more than anybody else because we hear it the same way. Mm. Um, I, I feel very strongly about how Shakespeare needs to be as contemporary as all our other theatre. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, and I work closely with the text when I'm working on Shakespeare. And we work, I assume they most of them come in understanding about iambic pentameter. Um, I, and I don't, I'm not interested in trying to labour that. But mm. I do use the form of the poetry and we work from the poetry. But my aim is always that we hear what the characters are thinking or what they're yeah. what they're debating what they're how they're trying to talk their way through their their world i absolutely do not go to a shakespeare play to hear poetry i may hear it but that's not what i go for <laughs> you go to his story. what has struck me on the shakespeare's i've been involved in that you've done with nick is exactly that is how familiar the language feels how contemporary and how normal as we as we have constantly seen Shakespeare speaks to every age and is constantly relevant. Um, yeah. And people have no trouble at all about sliding um, an Elizabethan play into a modern context. And it's speaking to us, and not just with the language, but with the um, issues, the, the, the world, the conflicts, the, the lives that are being represented in, in language that has such depth and that's continually explorable and speaks mm. to so many different levels of society at the same time and always has done and can do in many different dialects. To be honest with you, I would rather hear Shakespeare in any dialect other than standard English. We should never forget that his, his native um, accent was Warwickshire um, and that mm -hmm. the London accent would have been very, very different. The actors were maybe speaking in different accents. We don't know how they spoke unless we take it from clues in the text and, and how, how, yeah. how things are spelt. Mm. But no, I, I think there's always going to be a place for... for the richness, the brilliance, the genius of Shakespeare. Do you mind if I put you on the spot for a second? Uh, so if Shakespeare came from Warwickshire, how would he have sounded? Um, like the archers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect response. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, do you know, you, you've sat in a lot of technical rehearsals and seen many, many shows come together and watched all the technical aspects, including the lighting develop over the years. Um, one question always preoccupies us. Do you need to be able to see to hear? Thank you very much for that question. Your work has such a strong influence on mine. There is a sort of sense that if we don't see people's mouths, we think we can't hear them. Mm. Now, we don't do that absolutely literally anymore. People do turn their backs. But it is a problem with audibility if it's dark. 
if it's mm. very dark, yes. Mm. Um, uh, I hope that, that feels no, like, it's, oh, it's either got to be light or dark, and I don't mean that. No, no it, we, we realise yeah. that. But yeah. I, think it, I think it's interesting. I think there's sometimes a temptation to get carried away with the, the, the artfulness of a picture and sometimes forget that actually... Ultimately, we're here to tell a story to a bunch of audience members who are sitting in the room with us, and we need to be able to see the characters telling that story. Yes. And we're always slightly fascinated by how much you need to see. Is one eye enough? Is half a face enough? And um, I think yes. we've always got to be aware of the balance. <laughs> yeah, and I guess we should be talking to you about it as well, because actually you know, you're you you're out there in the auditorium watching and listening just as we are, and those conversations are really helpful when we do have when we do. Yeah. bumpy to each other over a coffee it makes a big difference oh thank you and I have an incredibly privileged position in rehearsals and and tech and previews because I do just sit and watch and listen for hours yeah. um, and more than anybody ever uh, anybody else ever does um, but everybody in that production we you know we know that it's a it's a group activity isn't it theatre mm. everything everybody does there affects my work mm. it's very often very very powerful ways you know, the movement coach will affect what I do. Yeah. Um, the sound, lighting, directing, everything. And I guess costumes and wigs and makeup Costumes. And oh, well. my it's goodness, yes. Different. Yes, yes. I, and especially with the period costume, trying to get the girls before they have their costume fitting so that they breathe in at their biggest capacity when they're measured. Right. For their corset. Right. So that yes. they have room to breathe in their corset, which which they very often don't. Shoes mm. make a huge difference to how people stand and therefore breathe. Um, noisy shoes. Noisy shoes are the bane of my life. <laughs> and I'd say probably noisy technology. I can't. I personally can't bear it when you go into a theatre and all you can hear is fan noises from bits oh, of equipment. But people have worked, have worked so hard on that, haven't they, over the last yeah, few years? Yes, I mean, I do keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And yeah, I, I never stop because there's really no excuse now because the equipment does exist that doesn't have to make a noise. So. Uh, no, that's fantastic. And, and I think, when I, again, when I became head of voice, knowing the Olivier and especially but the whole of the national so well I was always so conscious that the, the actors are in the front line um, mm. often battling things over which they have no control in mm. order to be heard in a very in a, in a, a demanding acoustic um, uh, so one of the my big missions sorry I'm going into a monologue was to, <laughs> no, good, good, good. to to talk to everybody because I went in there with, and often even the sound designers were quite surprised that I came and talked to them that people mm didn't talk to the voice coach they were always I suppose seen as a consultant or something I don't know and yet we're right actually at the heart of everything that happens there and that that's I mean that's how I got the job really was talking to Nick about that was that it has to be you've got to have a cultural voice here and that's at the heart of the work so it seems to me the, this is why I'm so pleased you wanted to talk to me for the podcast because I want to make sure that we are all talking to each other and, and recognizing that our work affects each other yeah, um, it, it, it really does. And I think this is what we're finding in all the conversations we're having is that everyone's agreeing that the more we talk to each other, the, the better the, the work and better the process. And I think we do get, I think certainly lighting designers and sound designers tend to get quite often quite stuck at their production desk behind all their screens and monitors and technology. And it's, I think it's really important that we get up and wander around and actually you know, sit and talk to yes. other people in the room and don't get locked up behind um, all the computers. Because oh, that's wonderful. That's not what the show's about, really. And in the um, Olivier, it's the raised stalls. You know, I always sit in the raised stalls. Those are the tricky yes. workplaces. Yeah, that's <laughs> the trickiest place for everybody. Yeah, that's, it, really, yeah. it really is, yeah. exactly. Um, and back, back on lighting, is it true that it needs to be bright for comedy, which is a, a cliche we're often told about? Do you know, I'm not very good at the sort of finite rules. Mm. Um, I, I could never say that. I think yeah. you know, somebody's always going to surprise me. Ben um, Omar, we were talking to you, um, mentioned that something which I found very interesting is it he said for comedy the audience need to feel like they're in the same room as the performer rather than watching them sort of behind a frame so it's not necessarily about actual brightness in terms of illumination levels but it's about the contact and sharing the space does that resonate with you again I just don't think I could say that in a finite way Sure. Um, uh, because I think very, very often, many different plays we want people to feel in the same room. And yeah. I think in the Olivier, you are in the same room. Different theatres yeah. lead to different things. I, uh, you know, it's something I have not particularly considered. 
So you've opened a little window in my mind. <laughs> yeah. I think as well, the complication is, is also to do with perception, isn't it? Because you can, it is possible to uh, illuminate a scene in such a way that it appears to be dark or suggests that yes. it's dark, but in actual fact, it's not. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've touched on this subject as well, but amplification. What's your general feeling about actors using microphones? Because these days we're reaching new levels of sophistication so that an audience can be unaware that the, the actors' voices are being supported. But it does mean that I wonder sometimes whether we are losing the more traditional techniques of projection. Uh, do you feel that something's been lost or is it all, all to the good? I'm not sure that it would be a bad thing to stop people shouting in the theatre. Um, no. I suppose I've had a bit of a journey with mics. Um, and as you say, they, they're getting more and more sophisticated and people really don't know they're there half the time. I think what I'm one of my uh, latest uh, projects is to encourage the drama schools to teach microphone technique to the students mm. because people come in and don't know what to do. Because it's a whole new set of techniques, right? It's, it's, well, it's... There, there isn't actually. The, the best way to get the best out of a radio mic, and Chris and everybody else would say this as well, is to pretend you haven't got it on and speak as if you haven't got it on mm. um, uh -huh. so that you have energy, you have the energy for the space. And, uh, you know, I've been glib about shouting. Uh, I've never encouraged people to shout. and We don't have to shout. People do manage to project um, in most theatres without over projecting mm. um, but to be in control of their voice when they're on a radio radio mic it is best that they try to forget that they're using it if mm. rather than trying to sit back and let the radio mic do the work um, because there, we we all know and directors will agree and roofers will agree that radio mics don't solve um, clarity and audibility problems no. um, because it's a, as you as you've already gauged from me talking about my job it's a much more complex uh set of skills to speak um effectively authentically and clearly on a, on a big stage in a complex play mm. it isn't just about speak up um so that the the basis of using it as if you don't have one is is absolutely fundamental and i say it over and over again uh, though it doesn't solve all the problems we get in difficult spaces it has uh taken a lot of uh weight from my shoulders because actually getting um, a, a complicated play in the Olivier with a, a big cast and a great variety of age and experience getting them all clearly heard through tech and previews was enormous amount of work mm -hmm. enormous and sometimes I had to do it without the director even knowing I was doing it or wanting me to do it but it was huge and, and carry, I carry a lot of anxiety about that because it's always, if people can't be heard, the voice coach will be the person. He's, he's dragged um, into the office, yeah. Yes, and I have to try to take away that this is not about, that is my reputation, you know, it's not about me, it's about the play. Yeah. But, um, you know, people still, you know, even, even directors, when they know that we've all got work in progress on the first day of the tech, even sound designers on the first or second day of tech will go, I can't hear so-and-so. And I usually say, well, I think we've all got work to do, you know, yet. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that has has been really helpful, and it also has encouraged the conversation between the sound team and the voice team because we very much realise we have to work together mm. um, and make life as easy as possible for everybody. So um, I will do whatever's needed. Um, I'm interested in the development of theatre and modern theatre. I look forward to the day when the actors don't have any uh, wires on their radio mics because that's what they hate most, actually, is the feeling of the mic. It can yeah. take out of the moment. And we, of course, we still have actors who feel uh, slighted by being asked to use a radio mic, that they feel it's it's um, a judgment upon their technical ability, and it isn't. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing that I, I use to persuade them is actually it works best with the hard of hearing loop. Mm, right, yeah. And the, new, and the goggles and so forth. Yes. Um, so that usually um, encourages them to, to realise that it's not, a, it's not about them. Yeah. And as you say, it still requires technique, doesn't it? To, to, exactly to the same technique. Ex it doesn't mean you can sit back on it. But yeah. I wondered, actually, does it, does it allow people to move away from what might be perceived by a younger audience as a sort of old-fashioned style of delivery into something more natural and more contemporary sounding? Well, if, if a young actor tries to use the sort of delivery they might do in a, a normal conversation, which will mean they probably drop the energy at the end of their line or they rush bits, you know, mm. that, that won't work radio mic, no radio mic. Okay. Um, so right. that's more about understanding 
how acting works and, and how voice mm-hmm. and acting works, which is all part of the, the picture. So, no, you can't speak as if you were on television or in a soap opera, I don't think, with a radio mm-hmm. mic on the stage. Okay. Because the texts are more concise. It occurs to me, you know, we've, we've talked about projection several times, but I know that it's more complicated than sheer volume. Can you explain a bit about it, just for people who listen to this who might not know what we mean by projection? How can actors get subtle vocal expression to the back of a circle in a large venue? How do they do that? Okay, um, going back to the body and where we began, in our body, we have three spaces that amplify our voice. So I'm going to do technical stuff. Is that right? Yeah, yes, please. So the voice is made when air coming out of your lungs is vibrated in your throat by your vocal folds. And they're not called vocal cords anymore, they're vocal folds because they're a group of muscles. And it's a bit like blowing through a leaf or a reed in a, in a, in a wind instrument. That's, if you put a microphone down somebody's throat to the vocal folds, which people have done, and you ask the speaker to say ah or ah, all you would hear would be bip, 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 tiny little sounds. Those sounds have to be amplified, and they're amplified, first of all, in the space in the throat above the vocal folds, then in the mouth, which is the biggest of the amplifiers, and then in the nasal sinuses. So you've got these three amplifying spaces that are all flexible and um, work together, and they're all affected by tension. So if, you have, if you're anxious and you have tension in your shoulders, you'll get tension in your throat, and that first amplifying space won't be big enough. If you bite your back teeth together, you've got tension in your jaw, your, your, the space in your mouth and your nose isn't big enough. And if you have that tension in, around your jaw and your face, your tongue won't work properly, so you won't have clear articulation. So speaking clearly enough is actually getting the balance of the amplification right in your body. And we talk about resonance in those spaces, and then we talk about secondary resonance right through your body in the bones and the muscles. And thinking right through the body can help to release those spaces as well. So we need to facilitate the sound in the body in order to get it out clearly and travel across the space. Because actually, um, singers don't use a lot of, you know, opera singers don't use a lot of air pressure against the vocal folds. It's about the the space in, in the mouth and the throat and the nose that helps to, and then the articulation that amplifies it and sends it out. Certainly listening to some actors and some singers, it, it does appear to be some kind of sorcery. You can hear them well, where others you can't. <laughs> then certain theatres have a sort of uh, almost a fundamental frequency, I think, if that's... Uh, Chris will tell me if I'm using the wrong term. Mm. Um, I'm sorry, I'm talking about Chris Shuttles. So in the Olivier, the male tenor voice comes across really well. If you think about uh, Simon Russell Beale and Rory Kinnear, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, they really help. And, and women's voices, when they're well-trained, also work very well. Whereas um, in the Olivier, a big bass male voice with lots of resonance can really rumble around and not be very clear. Okay. Mm. Different spaces, different acoustics. Yeah, so so actually literally people suit the theatre or or they don't. Their voices can, but we can manage that. You know, you you just have to balance it, yeah. Talking about Chris Shutt, how how do you feel about underscoring? Um, Is it something you relish working with? Is it a challenge? Is it just part of your job to, to deal with that sort of balancing audibility of the the cast with um, underscore and music? Um, It's something I have to be patient with through tech. Um, Because our big theatres are really difficult to balance sound-wise, I know. That's one of the reasons for for microphone, isn't it? It gives uh, much more um, of a filmic way of using sound uh, and music. Yeah, and, it gives, and I think it gives um, a sound designer more of the tools to finesse that because I think yes. if they can control all the elements, they can then hopefully put it together in a way that balances. When without the mics, I think that's much much harder. It um, is, and then but a director like Nicholas Heitner, I can always remember him absolutely going, "No, take take the um, underscoring out there. They're going to speak. Okay, bring it in here." You know, Nick, who's, yeah. who's a, very musical anyway, has confidence to control that, and a lot, many many very very few directors have that sort of confidence now to control that. I have to trust the sound designer um, because clearly we don't want the actor to suddenly lift their voice over underscoring. It's not the point. Um, so mm. I, I, I know I, I try not to be a pain in the neck in tech, um, but sometimes <laughs> the, the, if, after a few preview, you know, in tech in previews, there might come a point yeah. where I go, you know, sitting in that seat uh, with that underscoring, I just don't hear what they say. Um, 
and hopefully, you know, somebody like Chris or, or, or Paul Ardetti, yeah. you know, used to me, will be quite glad there's another ear in the room, you know. No, exactly. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's the same from us, that if you're sitting in a seat and you can't see someone or you're missing past the story, then we want to know about it because sometimes you just need that outside view to sort of jolt you back into the reality of what the situation is. So, yeah. Yes, we all need that, don't we? Everybody, we all need another ear, another eye, because you can go down a tunnel, can't you? You can, you really can. Focusing on one thing. And sometimes, as we were saying with Olive the other day, sometimes it's actually about getting the note rather than necessarily someone's suggestion of the solution, but just knowing there's an issue that needs to be looked at, then it's up to the the team on the show to then work out how to, how to resolve it. It's a, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. How do you go on stage or record a podcast when you have a stinking cold? (laughs) Well, you're doing very well. Have you got a cold? (laughs) No, I haven't. haven't. Um, Well, there's not a lot you can do really. Um, uh, We, we try to, um, I mean, for emergencies, you can take decongestants, but on stage, we we avoid that because hydration is incredibly important for vocal work. You have to keep the the body and the vocal folds hydrated. I always say to actors, if you've got a cold, it's breath, deep breath support and articulation. So you take the pressure off trying to project. You focus on breathing. You may have to breathe more frequently than normal and clarity of speech. Mm. But if your nose is blocked, there's not a lot you can do without a decongestant. We steaming is 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 our big go to for everything. Just steaming with hot water and nothing else, mm-hmm. um, no older soil or anything in it. Um, it can move uh, mucus, um, but it keeps you hydrated. But if you do that um, as an actor, you you mustn't do it too close to performing. So we would say at the very latest half an hour before the performance. But that's the very latest because it's too hot. So the lemon lemon and honey and all the other. Um... A wife's hell rem- um, remedies aren't necessarily the best thing. It's just pure steam is, is your is your go to. There's nothing wrong with lemon and honey. You know, right. honey is an antiseptic, uh, so it's uh, absolutely take all that stuff. Hot drinks. We, we always go never too hot again for the vocal yeah. parts. Um, but probably the old wives' remedies are better than than most. Better than, <laughs> than yeah. all the stuff you see in the counter at Boots. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Before we get to the quick fire round, Jeanette, we can't pass up this opportunity to ask you, can you give us any tips to improve our radio voices? I've been told that I have a derotorized R. Does that make sense? I'm not as bad as Elmer Fudd, but it's there. So, yes, uh, R is a, 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 it is a rhotic sound. It means you curl the tip of your tongue back. Um, I haven't particularly noticed yours. Um, I think you're doing very well, both of you. You both have lovely, warm uh, voices and you, you speak very naturally. Think about your physicality, and especially when you're working to a microphone or to a screen, is to make sure that you're not putting all your energy into your shoulders, your head, your nose, your throat, and pushing forward, trying to keep your shoulders relaxed, your jaw relaxed, um, your face relaxed, still animated, of course. And um, if you're sitting, imagine yourself breathing right down into the seat, right down into your bum, which will help keep your breathing in control. Well, I'm doing all the wrong things. I'm just aware of myself. (laughs) sitting hunched slightly towards my computer screen and talking into a microphone so exactly as I shouldn't be so I'm going to bear this in mind this is really great I will be yeah I feel like I've just transformed into somebody else good <laughs> we should have asked you this at the beginning really shouldn't we? and there's one other small thing that can make a big difference have at least one of your feet flat on the floor Oh God! We talk I've about, got mine curled around my chair. People always do. Look, if you think, see how it feels with them curled around your chair, how your body feels, yeah. and then change it and put either both feet flat or at least one foot flat oh, on the floor. Yeah, that's so much better. It, <laughs> really interesting. How weird! Yeah. You get absolutely grounded, don't you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. There you go. It's a pleasure. Top tips there. Brilliant. <laughs> Shall we move on to our quick fire round, James? We should. Let's do that. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Jeanette, but we, yes. we'll just ask a few questions just to sort of end on a on a, a light-hearted note. And you can answer single words or elaborate if you choose. There's, there's no rules. Yeah. And it might not be quick. I'm a very slow thinker. <laughs> don't worry. It doesn't right. have to be. It's great. Um, Jeanette, what's your favourite stage of the process of making a show? Um, first session with the actor mm. on my own. What is your favourite tool? I don't have any tools. It's just me and my voice and my ear. That's my favourite tool, my ears. Notebook? No. Do you remember things? Do you write things down? No. 
I should do, probably. No, yeah, hey, if you don't need to, why don't start now? <laughs> Are you night owl or dawn chorus? Well, I used to assume I was a night owl because I worked at night so much. Mm. Um, but actually, during this lockdown, I, I wake up at six o'clock and I love it. You're not the first person to say that, actually. It's, uh, yeah. it's definitely changed people, I think. We've suddenly become more aware of our natural rhythms, I think. Yes. Pudding or cheese? Both. <laughs> I, you know, I'll tell you this. One, one, That's a legitimate answer. That's fine. It's good. No, listen, when, when I was um, between gigs, before I went to pan, pantomime in Manchester, I worked on the cheese counter at Harrods. Oh, wow. Yes, that was before the al days. It was a tiny little counter run by these two beautiful men. Um, and I learned so much about cheese. I love cheese, but I have very sweet tooth as well. <laughs> Both it is. Both it is. Exactly. What would be on your tech rider if you could have one to get you through the tech what, rider? What, what, what is, I don't understand what a tech rider is. Bands um, notoriously have riders for their dressing rooms. So it might be you know, the blue M&Ms or 16 bottles of whiskey or oh. um, a piano or um, Chris Shutt said um, a basket of puppies. Um, so. <laughs> I, I think a, a, a quick escape route to my office. And um, it's James's round. What can he get you? A very, a very nice special glass of uh, dry YY. Perfect. Uh, I'm on my way. Packet of crisps? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Jeanette. Well, I suspected it was going to be fascinating, and it surely was. It was wonderful. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. And you too. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been a great privilege, as all my work is. Thank you once again to Jeanette for giving up her time to talk to us. And if you want to know more about Jeanette's work and her techniques, her book, The Voice Exercise Book, A Guide to Healthy and Effective Voice Use, is available from National Theatre Books. So no excuses for mumbling or gabbling in public from now on. As ever, if you have any questions, comments or even ideas for future episodes, you can contact us on Instagram or Twitter at makingtheatrefm or if you prefer, by email on makingtheatrepodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a glowing review. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.